Thank you for joining us today for Geezers of Gear, episode 56. This podcast is brought to you by Elation Professional. Elation Professional is excited to launch a completely new brand of inspiring and dependable atmospheric effects here at LDI, Magmatic. Designed, engineered, and exclusively distributed by Elation, Magmatic encompasses a full range of specialty effects that are easy to use yet hard to break. Magmatic includes a comprehensive range of haze and fog machines with the Magma and Thermatic series, atmospheric snow machines and the Polar series, and CO2 cryogenic simulation effects with the Rocket series. To complement the special effects machines, Elation has developed a complete line of specially formulated effect fluids called Atmosity. Also available is an IP65 rated series of UV LED lighting products in the Prisma series. Check out the new Magmatic Specialty Effects at Elation booth number 602. Yeah. We're jamming over here. Yes. I was much closer that time. You were much closer. You got the yeah. You almost got it perfect that time, Henry. Almost. That was unbelievable. So uh, this guy's sitting here thinking we're a bunch of retards. He's, he's looking at us like lighting guys are always so strange. So here we are I, at L- I look at everybody that way. <laughs> We're at LDI and recording episode number 56. So that's it. 56. Yep. And we have Mr. Lee Stein with um, Martin Audio. Martin Audio. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered your name and I forgot your company. Well, you remember the, I was going to say you remember the important part, but I'm, I obviously owe a lot to Martin Audio. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, we, we appreciate you coming over and. Um, you know, I know this is probably a somewhat unusual show for you guys in that it's a lighting show, but it is obviously the business has become much more sort of intertwined and audio lighting seems to all kind of converge a little bit. It, it absolutely the case. A, a lot video of the, as well. Yeah. Well, and video as well. Yeah. So, you know, the disciplines seem to be merging a little bit and uh, we were actually just talking, the gentleman was, who was here when you walked in was, was uh, Steve Warren from Avolites, okay. uh, big lighting manufacturer. And um, he was talking about at one point Soundcraft, or I think you brought it up, yeah, Soundcraft came out with a, uh, <clears throat> an audio console that had lighting in it. Yes. So it yes. had some lighting control in it. Yes, I believe the product manager for that is actually the current managing director of Martin Audio, Tom Hart. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> we bagged on that pretty hard. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> so good. That was a nice time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we uh, you know, it's just, it's a weird one because how far do you go with it? And, you know, what we came to the conclusion was basically if you're doing audio in, in a room and you just need some up lights and you need a few lights here and there, it makes a load of sense. Yeah. But to try and control a full, you know, rig, rig yeah. of audio and lighting from one console, I don't know that we're there yet. You know, I, yeah, I just I, don't. Uh, and, and maybe we shouldn't be. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, they, they are quite different in that regard. So, um, so I mean, first of all, like we, we just kind of mentioned the fact that this is a lighting show for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, live design would like you to think that it's about all things live 
you know, being audio lighting right. and everything else. But for the most part, it's it's a pretty big uh, big lighting show that they tend to sort of scratch the surface of audio. And I know me coming mostly from the lighting business, we used to love going to shows like AES and and uh, Infocom and shows that were not really our discipline. Right. Because you would get those sort of fringe customers, you know, people that you might not get so much time with at your core shows. And I don't know if that's the case for you guys at a show like this. I, you know, I, there's always this cultural divide between audio and lighting, right? Mm -hmm. um, which you've probably experienced on both sides of the fence. Of and, yeah, it's When I was at Avid, um, there was a, we had a, a sales manager who, who once said, I can, I can teach an audio guy video. I can't teach a video guy audio. And the, you know, the, it's, the audio culture is just unique unto itself, and it tends to be a little bit self-contained, uh, you know, unless there's some need to not be, which, a lot of, which is part of this convergence. A lot of people see some opportunity with video and with light, so that's bringing a lot of audio companies here to the show, and that's what's bringing us here to the show as well. So you're saying that basically audio engineers have specially tuned ears or something, so making that transition backwards into yeah, it, it's a different that's discipline. more analog? I mean, it, it comes from, you know, some of it comes from involvement with music, and then it comes from you know, learning what, what is really a, a, a very abstract trade, right? I mean, you're dealing with sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just something, like, my wife is visually oriented. She cannot hear you know, the difference between two different singers, for instance. Um, it, you know, our, our ears are tuned to it. There's also a culture around it. Uh, we spent years immersed in it. Sure. Uh, again, usually based off of a love for music or involvement in music. Um, and I think if you don't come from that background, it's, it's tough to, yeah. to really become familiar with it. Whereas, you know, we all see, we all think we know lights, we all think we know video. There's obviously nuances and subtleties and expertise in it that we don't have. Yeah. But, but you know, sort of from a sales standpoint, you know, we did teach audio people to sell video, and you know, we—I mm -hmm. don't think they tried it the other way around because they had the the person in question had been unsuccessful trying to do that in his past. Right. So, have you been to this show before? Or yeah, I, I mean, time? I went to used to this used to be at the show probably 15, 20 years ago with Sennheiser actually. Um, okay. And then, um, you know, the audio proponents seemed to to die out a little bit, and then. Um, you know, they've been making a concerted effort. We were here three years ago with uh, with an MLA rig out in the outdoor stage, okay, on the, yeah. the big stage, when yeah. they first did the LDI outside. And um, I think they've done away with that this year, right? I, I think there they, is no outdoor they, stages. They did, and then, and we're we're at the replacement for that now, which is uh, LDI Amplify, where there's, uh, there's right there's four loudspeaker manufacturers in a room, and we essentially you know, get 15 minutes every hour hour and a half to do a, a, a demo presentation. So where's okay. that breakout room? What's that breakout That's room? That's N245. 245, just around the corner from us. Just, hey, just down the hall. That's Someone awesome. told me it was 0.36 miles from our booth to the demo room. <laughs> I don't know if they were bragging that it actually didn't put a smile to my face. <laughs> they were probably doing the steps thing on their, on their watch, and they were taking credit for some steps or whatever. Perhaps. So, um, you know, Martin, Martin's an interesting one for me because I played in bands many, many years ago. And we were using JBL W bins and and uh, I've heard I of JBL. I forget what our <laughs> I forget what our mids were and you know some sort of an Altec horn or something, but it was a pretty you know archaic sound yeah. system, and that's what everybody used. You know, eighteen inch W bins and whatever mid, and then all of a sudden these you know really high tech 
boxes came out and I, what's the name of that? Fillashave. Yeah, the Fillashave. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's really where Martin Audio came, came from. I mean, yeah. you know, the, I mean, you know, Dave Martin saw how all these systems, you know, to deal with these large concerts with just sort of assembled ad hoc. Yeah. And it was really one of the first to put together production systems, you know, Fillashave. And yeah. you know, there's a long history there. It's brought us to where we are. But I remember now. the difference, you know, and we were metal bands basically at the time. And the difference in sound between these 15-inch, you know, Martin bins and the and that mid-range, that, you know, super high-tech mid that that they had and stuff, from that going backwards to to our W bins and stuff, the difference was just tremendous. And all of a sudden, you know, some of our competitive bands were using these Martin rigs, and they just sounded so much better than us. <laughs> and we had to step it up, and we had to go out and rent or buy a Martin sound system to tour with because we just we sounded like shit now compared to these other guys, right? I wish you were on the road now and renting and buying a Martin sound yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, well, some days I wish I was, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some days I wish I was. Those were good times back then. But uh, So Martin, obviously, from then to here, has, has changed tremendously. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, the obviously line array technology has completely taken over the world and um, that's where everything is now. And I know on the used market, we've sold a bunch of Martin line array rigs. Um, so, you know, where is Martin today? Like where, you know, are, are they start with that cutting edge, new, greatest, hottest technology? Are they somewhere in the pack um, are they climbing? So, you know, so I, I would argue that you know, when we came out with MLA, that still that is at the vanguard uh, when it comes to optimized systems. That okay. No one really does what we do. Everyone, you know, most people do what is a, a form of what we'll call beam steering. Beam steering. So, yeah. So, and we don't do beam steering, although we get lumped in with that. And beam steering is really where you just sort of have, if you look at it in light terms, where you have a mm -hmm. lens on the light and you narrow, you know, narrow, widen it. It's the same thing with audio, where they can narrow or widen the audio pattern. What we can do with our technology, we can actually address issues or anomalies in the middle of the sound field. So, for instance, if there is a, um, a balcony that you're getting some slapback from, we can actually address that balcony face with our technology. Um, so and, you have and, and, that, and that's unique to us. What else we've, that we've done, we had MLA, which came out probably 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at the top tier of line ray manufacturers, we're the only ones who have come out with a derivative of that technology, which is now our wavefront precision, whereas MLA is active and has, you know, multiple channels of power and DSP per each box. These are now passive systems, which make them, you know, financially more attainable. Mm -hmm. um, but still with, with the majority of the performance you get from, from MLA. Uh, it's really remarkable. It's what we have here, actually, at the show. So... <clears throat> Excuse me. So what you're saying, so the, this new passive system out there, so you're doing your own amplification along with that now also, yeah, the is that D correct? Yeah, the DSP is in the amplifiers. Uh, okay. There are Icon amps. Uh, it's the same math we use for MLA. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that you can't get more PA for the money. I mean, we're really offering you what is a, a top-tier system, but just with a, a little different infrastructure and architecture and, and getting you probably 85% of the performance. So you're basically, you're mapping a room, you know, so I've, I've seen some yeah. of the, the sound mapping software that there is out there. And um, <clears throat> so what you're basically doing is taking feedback or areas of slapback into what, a, a microphone system and being able to edit yeah. that out for lack well, of a well, better term. I mean, that's how we came up with the original design of the system was actually by lining up a bunch of microphones in a warehouse space and setting up 
you know, the arrays in different ways and taking measurements. I mean, literally like 200 microphones on the floor and taking measurements at, at, at different spots along the floor to be able to do the math that allows us to do what we do. Uh, the way the system works is you go, you go in, you, you draw your room, uh, you set where the audience area is, where, where what we call non-audience is, and then what we might call a hard avoid. So someplace where you really don't want sound to go to, best example would be the stage. Mm -hmm. um, and you, know, you also then tell it where you're going to hang the array. Uh, you tell it your parameters, like, you, know, you, you pick a, what we call a vector point, typically front of house, and you say, well, I want it to be two to be louder at the front, two to be quieter at the back, and the system does its math, and it, it you know, applies the DSP on, on the optimization to make certain that we get that type of coverage and very even from front to back, so that you know, the front row sounds extremely similar to the back row, the only, diff the only variance being the volume. So earlier in the year, um, what was it? Spice Girls went out, right? Yeah. So Spice Girls. I missed that tour. <laughs> yeah, so, us too. But it was kind of interesting what happened with Spice Girls and the fact that they had this kick-ass PA system, they mapped the room, and then they filled up the arena and the sound was dog shit for well, the first three shows. Their, opening, heard. their opening show was... Um, or shows were in soccer stadiums, right? Big soccer stadiums, which by design are made to be very noisy and loud. They yeah. they want to reverberate people yeah. yelling and screaming and stomping in the stands and stuff because they want that intimidation to the visiting team, right? And so, very very high level front of house engineer, very good sound system, and they were just slaughtered over their sound quality. Yep. And so I don't know where you were going with that. No, so anyway, so when you map a room, do you have like, is there a, a setting, almost like Dolby noise reduction, I said, you know, or something like that, where you go, okay, this is what the room sounds like, empty at sound check, but then do you have a, a preset, for lack of a better term, for a full, full uh, arena? We don't. We do have, uh, we do make accommodations for changes in weather, so barometric pressure, temperature, yada, yada. Um, you know what, it's funny because I've seen our systems in an empty stadium and, and behave extremely controlled where you would have thought it was a full stadium. So I, I think, you know, I can't speak to what happened with the Spice Girls and what happened there. I've seen, right. I've seen other situations such as, because um, usually when we, when we map out a system, when we do a proof of concept, it's in an empty room. Right. Um, you know, one example is uh, there's a, a church in Charlotte that has an enormous pipe organ, has this enormous dome over the center of the... Uh, it's a Catholic church, <laughs> for sure, right? It's not, actually. No, um, wow. And it has a marble back wall. So, I, I mean, just the worst possible circumstance you could have. And uh, a partner of ours, Clark, uh, Clark Media, went in there and used a, a compact system, and they were able to remove the uh, slapback off the back wall and you know, minimize the reverberance from the dome which they wanted when the pipe organ was going, but they didn't want when they're doing a more contemporary service. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, you know, and, and it depends on how you apply it. I mean, you can look at the dome in our software as a hard avoid. You can also tell the DSP what your top priorities are. Is your top priority the audience? Is it the non-audience, which I can't imagine it ever would be? Or is it the hard avoid? And you can actually, by percentages, totaling up to 100%, determine you know, how your priorities are set, and the DSP applies it accordingly. So you know, there's some art to it. There's some trial and error to it, depending on how... Uh, difficult the spaces you're dealing with i would imagine though like you know in, in a venue like a church like that where you have so many reflective surfaces domes 
unto themselves are nightmares to do sound in, yes, obviously, they are. because you stand on the left edge and you talk up. You know, you see this, like when we went to Italy, we had that. We, we ran into something where you're talking on one edge and it's just wrapping all the way around the dome. Yeah, you get the, you get the, the parabolic effect. Yeah, so, yeah. so, I mean, does the, does the DSP or the, does the software get it 70% of the way there and then you just got to tune it by ear the rest of the way? I, it depends on the situation. I, you know, I mean, a lot of, what, we, what I see is a lot of people overcomplicate situations. It's like start basic. You know, don't, don't even address what you think the issues are in the room yet until they prove to be issues. Right. And then, and then just scale it back from there. Uh, until you get to to uh, you know the desired result. So there was no modeling done for this room whatsoever. Uh, in I advance? mean, they, they they no, they drew the room on on the spot. Or we you know, oftentimes we get drawings and we mm -hmm. can, we can come up with uh, with what we think is the right design and what we think the results are going to be. And and usually we're pretty close, if not spot on. That's cool. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, and I mean, this is getting really really geeky, but I'm dying to know, right? Okay. So you're getting you're the one. Venue drawings yes. on um, in CAD, right? Yeah. Correct. Yep. And basically, you're importing that those 3D CAD files. Well, we're not yet. I mean, really, we're we're kind of hand, we're hand drawing some of these, and we're having advancement of the software that allows us to do a number of things coming up that I can't talk about yet. Okay. But but you know, we're we're looking at it from you know we've got slices of the room, and and we are putting in the dimensions, and there's you know very easy ways to do that, and then also you know big part of it is where you hang in the PA. Well, that's, um, what, that's what I'm saying, though. So, I mean, you know, you're basically, your engineers, your people that are pitching the rig, right? They're opening up the software. They're seeing all the angles in the room. They're seeing all the measurements and everything else. And then at, at that point, you're import, uh, importing or you're adding in a box design with its mm -hmm. field, with its, with its field of, of projection. Right. And then you're just trying to fill up all the holes, basically balconies and under balconies and, and things like that and delays. And then at that point, what happens a little bit? Just go into that a little bit. So, so, so you know, obviously we have experienced designers, and we, we can look at them and determine, you know, uh, there's a room we're dealing with now where there's a mezzanine and a balcony. Mm -hmm. And we know we can't hit the back of the mezzanine from the main PA, so we're going to have to put in some... Delay. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some, Fill. Some, right, yeah. exactly. Um, but, you know, in the software, uh, you're really looking at a, a, a 2D version of it from the side. Mm -hmm. Where you know, let's say you have the stage on the right, you've got the balconies, or stage on the left, balconies on the right, and and you're you are drawing it that way with the appropriate level of rake, with the uh, with the seating, and the the software can accommodate standing or seating mm -hmm. audiences. Um, and again, you determine you know everything in green is going to be where your audience is, everything in in red is going to be stuff you don't really care about, and anything in blue is going to be what what you're trying to avoid. Okay. So in this particular instance the, that I'm speaking of, we actually looked at the uh, balcony face. It was reflective, and that, that was set up as a hard avoid. Um, and so, and, and when the, so the software goes through, and it, it will tell you a frequency response of what you can expect from front to back. You can actually, on the software, uh, pick a point anywhere in the seating area, and it will tell you what the frequency response is. Typically, plus or minus half a dB. So that, that's kind of where I was going with my next question is, I mean, you cannot have 100% sound in every seat in the room, right? No, and, and the software will, the software is very honest. It'll tell you, you know, what you are and aren't getting. I mean, you might have a certain seat where you see a high frequency bump. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, that's just what you're going to get. But, and it's, you know, you, you can't deal with, you can only mess with physics so much, right? Right. Um, so, you know, the software is, will tell you... Uh, 
it, it's a great predictor of what you can expect, and it's very honest about it. Uh, and if there are, you know, if there are issues, then you know, we look for other ways to address those issues if they can be addressed. So at some point, I would imagine, I think Bose a number of years ago did what was it called, an audibleizer system or something, where they would come in and they, they would sketch your match now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, you would put your, you put a set of headphones on, or you'd be in there and you could kind of emulate or model out the way the room would sound. Right. Yeah, which yeah, which is not what we're doing, and we're not going in with microphones and measuring the room per se. We're, mm-hmm. What we've done, it's more about how the array acts as an array. Mm-hmm. One thing we discovered when we started this project, which was probably 15 years ago, w- was that as an industry, we didn't really understand how all the components of array interacted. And that was the point of having all the boundary layer microphones across the warehouse floor and setting up arrays in different ways to see how it reacted at different distances. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to model what happens you know, with, with arrays in, in certain configurations. And from there, we're going to apply our DSP to, with that knowledge to then come up with a predicted result. So you know, we know, for instance, that we are not coherent at the aperture of the speaker. And a lot of loudspeaker mm-hmm. manufacturers, that, that's what they're trying to be. They're trying to be face coherent at the aperture of the speaker. I'll almost guarantee you we're not because we are concerned about being face coherent at the listener's ear. Interesting. So we, so, we are yeah. intentionally doing a lot of things, you know, creating what, if you were next to the speaker, would be phase anomalies, you know, phase issues, mm-hmm. so that by the time it gets to your ear, it sounds right. So it's, it's basically tweaking out then our eliminating the cancellations. Yeah, we're the... applying a lot of FIR filters in order mm-hmm. to get the, the desired result. And, and certain boxes, or if, if it's an MLA system, uh, certain components in an MLA system are, uh, uh, you know, dealing with phase and amplitude in a way in order to get the desired result of the audience. And how much of that is, is the physical hang on? So when you hang a line array, obviously you have the straps in the back where you can dial in the angles, right? Yeah. Well, much... So we try to do as little uh, processing as possible. So okay. I mean, that's, that's a very good question. Um, so you know, we are big believers in that you should have the speakers pointing at the audience. It that seems, always helps. Seems to be a good practice Sounds a bit to obvious. go by. Yeah. Um, so so we try to introduce as, as you know, little of the optimization as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on how much CSP you have available, what what you're dealing with, size of the room, size of the array, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and obviously, you know, the more anomalies you have, the more issues you have in a room, uh, the more DSP you have, the better your result's going to be. Interesting. One of the areas that, uh, you know, we talk about this on the podcast all the time is, um, and, and this, is, this is a recurring theme that's probably popped up on 20 of our podcasts right now, is speed of setup, mm. weight of gear, how fast you can rig it, how fast you can deploy it, how, you know, and everything else. So... Where are you seeing? Um, where are you seeing the advances? Um, I guess specifically, I guess at Martin. I don't want to make this a Martin, um, a Martin Audio kind of commercial here, right? But a lot of sound companies are are focused on this because I mean we see this in in you know PRG's doing with the Wonderwall, and you know some of the follow spot stuff and everything else. Everybody's got to set up quick, save yeah. the labor pack the truck and get on the road. So, well, part of that is that they've made the massive leaps and bounds in technology. Well, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. And so now they're tweaking the usability, the right. road ability, the setup, teardown yeah. times, you know, the top four or five systems out there, they may all sound different. They all sound good. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can't get a good sound out of them, it's probably not the gear. 
so, so the advances are really ex exactly that. You know, we're, we're looking at, uh, if you look at the wavefront precision systems, if we're talking about Martin Audio, the, the rigging is much simpler than previous systems that we've had. So it goes up quickly, comes down quickly. Um, and it seems each iteration, you know, we get a little bit better at it. Uh, and I think that it's really where it is. I mean, you know, since all these systems do sound good, other than personal preference, what's to make someone choose one system over another? But are you and, still tweaking materials and stuff? Yeah, or, or have we settled in on this is the best material to build a speaker box out of? Uh, you know, we're... A little bit. I mean, really, we're still doing some design, loudspeaker design. I mean, you know, our CDD live or CDD driver actually, which is five years old now, had a, has a patent on it. How often do you see a patent on a transducer right. these days? Not yeah. very often, yeah. right? So we're still looking at things like that. I and mean, if you look at our uh, wavefront uh, WPS, which is here at the show, uh, you know, it's got two eight-inch drivers and and four four-inch mid-range drivers, which is an unusual hmm. configuration. Yeah. So, so we're still looking at at different ways of uh, creating the audio, delivering the sound, designing the loudspeaker. I have a really dumb lighting guy question. <laughs> so is line array now the end all? Is it, is it good for every application? Is no, it I, so if you look at the church market, for instance, they are tending to build more amphitheater style um, uh, facilities where, where they're wider than they are deep. Yeah. That's not ideal for line array. That's, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a point source solution. Yep. Um, so, so you you see demand for line array, but it's not always the best tool for the job. Right. Right. And will line array eventually be bumped? Will, I, will there I, be some new I mean, technology you know, that... I, I, you know, if there is, I'm probably not the guy to ask. But right. uh, there are certain advantages of line array, which basically it's the throw, right? Yeah. And, and, and the consistency of coverage that, yeah. that are why we've now... Yeah. I'm using line arrays for 20 years. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I guess I'm seeing the entrance of a lot of, what are they called? Vertical arrays, I think now mm -hmm. too, which are, you know, point and shoot boxes basically, but they're all rigged, right? So, yeah. And, and, and you can, you know, the idea there is also um, versatility because you can use them in a wide variety of applications. Yeah. You know, so I think um, DMB Audio Technique, they just did a Prince Albert Hall with like 400 point and shoot boxes. It was just some nuts thing you know so that was uh that was kind of good, interest good for them yeah right it would know yeah right a lot of boxes a lot right, of boxes sure. yeah so are you seeing you know getting back to the size and the weight issue i remember the first time i picked up an exo box you know and i guess this was maybe in one of the alpha boxes or things okay. like that and so it had the handle holes it was a trap box and it had the handle holes cut in the side out of the carved into the wood and, and the guy goes pick that up and see how light that is and boom i picked it up and i was expecting something that was you know 80 or 90 pounds right. with, you know, three quarter inch Baltic birch. And, you know, it was like, wow, this thing is, you know, a, a 40 pound box or a 35 pound box. So are, you know, so getting back to the material thing, are, are, are people moving away from plywood and, you know, 14 layer marine birch plywood? And no, they're not because there's acoustic properties of that. And, and there's also just, you know, ruggedness, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, we, again, our WPS system here, I mean, it's, it's a wood box. It's got 10 drivers in it. It's just 60 pounds, so, which, which, for, which is pretty light. So you're reducing the thickness of the box and putting more bracing I, in, right, I yeah, guess, right? I, you know, I actually don't know. I, I haven't looked at that cabinet specifically, but it, doesn't, it mm -hmm. still looks like it's 13, 14 ply birch. <laughs> I mean, I, where, where we're coming up with, with the, uh, the weight savings, I'm not certain, but, um, but we are. Lee, how did you get into the business? You know, I'm a failed singer-songwriter. 
like, like us, like, like all like of us, of exactly. Here, most of us. You know, uh, well, in the lighting business, it's a, it's a funny trend, but we always ask, you know, and, and you'll find, you know, the most famous lighting designers, for example, who are working with the biggest acts out there. And, you know, they just tripped over it. Like, you know, yeah. they were looking for a job and their neighbor goes, hey, I heard you were looking for a job. You know, you want to come down to the recording studio and rap. This is actually a lighting designer who went on to to become very successful. And now he owns a lighting company. But he um, he was offered a job to go at a recording studio and just wrap cables and get coffee for people. Right. And he knew nothing about recording, knew nothing about audio, knew nothing about anything. And, you know, fast forward a, a very short period of time, less than a couple of years, I think. And this new band was in their recording and he ends up being the engineer for their recording. And it was Dire Straits. Sultans of Swing. And <laughs> then um, they were going on the road and they had a front of house audio guy, but they really liked this guy, Chaz. And they were like, well, why don't you be our lighting guy? We don't have a lighting guy. Do you know anything about it? And he goes, sure, yeah, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> so he goes out with Dire Straits as their lighting guy and had never run lighting in his life, knew nothing about it. And they had a great it. light show. And they had a great light show. That's and true. Chaz, you know, went on to become, you know, he was Steve Miller's lighting guy and lots and lots of other stuff and worked with Dire Straits for a long time. And uh, so, you know, we find that a lot of people either I feel come, like you're shaming my story. I feel no, like I no, can't no, live up to this now. No, but a lot of people in lighting just fall into it. They don't go to technical theater college or whatever. Yeah. And now that's more common, that route, it, it as is. opposed to lucking into it. It is, but we're geezers, right? We're so that geezers. wasn't really the route that, that we had. Geezers just fell in. Yeah, I was saying, same for me. I'm a yeah. lifelong musician. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a couple bands got closed, a couple of failed projects that got yep. closed, and I decided that I really wanted to get better connections and I would do that by getting a job at Guitar Center. Yeah. And they were starting uh, this sales outreach program and I had a background in sales as well. I've been supporting myself while being a struggling musician. Um, Lee, I so, have the exact same background, by do, the way. Do you really? So I was a struggling musician and my, my story, very briefly, was I was making like $200 a week playing on the road in a band, but my bar tab was usually 225 or 250 yeah. And so, you know, like Bush used to say, the, the arithmetic didn't work, <laughs> you know? So I went and got a job at a music store. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, so I, I, I worked at uh, Guitar Center Hollywood, and I was there for three years and, and started this, this outreach program where I was actively calling on uh, post-production studios. I was calling on Sound Deluxe and, and Paramount and, you know, Sony, uh, and I was getting business because, you know, this was the time of ADATs and DAD8s and mm -hmm. Pro Tools, and we had all that. Uh, and I ended up, um, I think I was the third top grossing salesperson in the chain or something like that. I was, wow. I, I, was a third, I was a third of the chain's digit design volume. Wow. And, yeah. Um, so I, so I, did, I did rather well. You were kind of good at it. I, I went out and I talked to people. They, you know, for some reason, I, I think, well, I won't go into it, but. It worked. Retail people aren't always the most inspired. I'm, I'm not a retail person. <laughs> right. I think that's exactly. essentially yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so. I did really well in retail because of the same thing. You know, I didn't just sit there playing guitar licks, right. you know, waiting for somebody to come in and go, oh, that's a cool guitar lick. Can you please sell me a guitar? Yeah, well, it was, but it was you a know? snake pit you know, aspect of it too, right? Yeah. I mean, you go in there and, you know, sometimes we work, work with these guys all day and, you know, there'd be a couple I can think of where I'd want to go home and I'd just 
wash it off of me. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it, I, I had a lot of fun going out and talking to these people and helping, you know, helping with their problems and, and their solutions. And, um, you know, I, uh, I had hoped at one point to run this whole thing for guitar center and you know, that didn't work out. Sennheiser came calling, um, and offered me something I couldn't turn down. But when I left that ended up turning into GC pro, Right. I wasn't the only one. I mean, there was right. me in Hollywood. There, you know, there were like Michael Palmer was in Orange County, and there were you know probably ten guys around the country. Right. Yep. Uh, I just happened to be in the right spot, and I had the right gear available, and I was able to make it happen. It was most most noticeable. Yeah. Uh, they've all got on to, to great things in business too. Yeah. But then I got a call from Sennheiser. I was you know I was kind of frustrated at, at the gig at Guitar Center because there was no infrastructure, there was no support, and they were expecting all these things, and it's like they're still really a retail environment. Yeah. And I was being you know, doing B2B sales. Uh, so I went to work for Sennheiser as uh, their Western regional market manager, uh, market development manager, where I would call on end users. So I'd call, go to broadcasters with microphones, go to studios with Neumann microphones. Uh, you know, we also started distributing loudspeakers. We distributed DAS and TurboSound, where a lot of people really? who were TurboSound at the time are now at Martin Audio. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and Novasound consoles. Uh, which was the first digital console, right? Uh, so for live purpose, anyway. So I, I was uh, I was there as market development for three years, and then I was the Western Regional Sales Manager for five years, um, which is when we took over Novason. And that's you know I come from more of a studio background. I had like project studios. I was always in the studio, uh, but you know with the Novason and with you know DAS and TurboSound, and of course you know just regular. Sennheiser microphones, I was in front of a lot of sound companies. It was um, a pretty big book to, to carry around, actually. It was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. even, even some of the infrared stuff, I'd be in courthouses for assistive listening, which is kind of dry, wow. but, yeah. you know. But, but you it's know, different. It is you different, were there for yeah. the OJ trial, right? No, I just, <laughs> yeah. I just had to No, ask. but I remember the OJ trial. I was a guitar <laughs> yeah. center for the OJ trial, actually. Um, but, yeah, so... It, it was a large portfolio, and I, you know, I, I would go to like Pacific Northwest, and I would go, I was gonna see TV broadcasters, radio broadcasters. I go see Carlson Audio. I'd go. It was, it was, it was a fun gig. Yeah. Uh, and then I, you know, I was uh, in charge of all that for all the brands for the western half of the U.S. Nice. Um, and you know, I was looking for my next step, and Digidesign then announced they were coming out with a live sound console. And I remember sitting in my office in, in Burbank laughing, thinking to myself, they have no idea what they're getting, getting themselves into. And then, you know, I knew a lot of people did design, obviously, from my past. And I kept thinking about it going, they haven't failed at much. Yeah. Um, and you know, a year after that, I was laughing because we were being really successful with the, with, <laughs> with the venue console. Yeah. So I, I started there the day they shipped the first console and they had no U.S. distribution whatsoever. Jesus. Wow. Uh, but they obviously so, had a strong brand and, and that, a trusted audience. There was a lot of trepidation part. in the market, yeah, uh, because people didn't know how they're going to come to market. You know, they yeah. were known as pro audio. Were they consumer? Because they were selling M boxes too at the time. Yeah. So you know, a lot of people had a lot of interest in the product, but they were concerned. Um, and I, what was fun for me was that I was able to build this from scratch: the distribution model, the programs. You know, how are we going to go to market? Uh, what can I do different from the from the competition? That's fun, yeah. It, it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thankfully, it was very successful. You know, it was a great team of people. There was my doppelganger, Robert Scovel, who I worked with, yeah. um, who I've been, you know, known for 20 years, been mistaken for him for 25 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, one of these days, I'm just to run up a big bar tab and say, yeah. Scovel, please. Yeah. Um, 
So I mean, you know, that that was great. I mean, the first five years of Digital Design, it was just it was just a kick. We were just being really successful. Uh, you know, at some point, Avid took it over. Um, Avid had owned it, but mm -hmm. Avid then took it over with the brand and everything. And and you know, it was a different uh, different regime. They came from the computer business. They did not understand the uh, the live sound business. They sort of understood. They didn't understand it. Um, and, you know, so the, there was there's some politics going on. There was perhaps uh, you know they they um, Ignore the line a little bit. We were still being successful. So just going back to that a little bit, you know, yeah. you said you had free reign to establish basically the sales I'd say I had free reign. <laughs> so I can imagine you sitting there with a big game of risk, you know, and you basically you're laying out yep. all of the, the puzzle pieces on how to bring a product that ultimately was very, very successful yes. that came into the market. What were your thoughts on that? Did you, did you say, hey, I know all these sound companies. I need strategic sound company partners, or do I need specific retail outlets? Or how, how did you conceptualize that? Yeah, so it, it, um, it was a little, a little bit of both. So we knew the sound companies needed to have on board. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we knew, we, we, obviously, you go to Claire. Mm -hmm. I had a product specialist, Steve McHale, who was ex-Claire and still on great terms with them, um, who was a true believer of, of the product. Uh, you know, I, have, I you know I knew a lot of people, right? you know, audio analysts and sound image and mm -hmm. Rat Sound. Uh, people on the East, some of them I had to meet for the first time. Um, thankfully, they you know they called around on me and didn't find anything too bad, so it was okay. So that was uh, your first national gig, too, right? That was my first national gig. Yeah, um, interesting. So it, it was strategically going after uh, people I knew were big in the console business. So you know, all you know the major sound companies. Uh, retailers like um, like Sound Productions out of mm -hmm. Dallas. Uh, you know, we did have uh, it was kind of an anomaly, but we had Sweetwater, who was not known for that, but they were a, a very big Dig Design partner. We realized they could give us some exposure on that as well. So it, it was kind of a multi-pronged approach. We started, um, you know, we I, I intentionally started slowly with distribution. Did not want to let the market. Didn't want it to be seen as you know, every guitar center had a DigiDesign console. Uh, it, it was very specialized, it was market specific. And, you know, once we created that trust it, with the sound companies and, and the resellers, and once the product proved itself, because it had to prove itself. Well, th that was my next question though. I mean, you know, you're doing a slow rollout intentionally, right? Because I mean, here's this very advanced software-based console, yeah. and I'm sure there were some glitches and some stuff along the way that had to be corrected very quickly. It, it, it was, you know, they, they did a lot of, um, they, they vetted the product pretty well. There wasn't a lot early on. There, there was one, um, you know, one big incident that got uh, a lot of press that, you know, if we really look back at it, I'd say 50% chance it was pilot error. Mm -hmm. um, but the console ended up, ended up working, I think, it was more robustly than we thought, uh, thankfully. Uh, but, you know, no one wanted to be the first one in. Everyone was like, this is really interesting. It'd be like they would all be looking at each other going, you first. Yeah. Um, and eventually we talked to a couple of, of engineers who were friends of ours to really just trying them out on tours. I, I, you know, it was on the Kelly Clarkson tour. And mm -hmm. six months, no issues, everyone happy with it. And, you know, that was when Claire said, all right, we'll buy some. Yeah, I would imagine, like, going to a company like Claire, that, I mean, you know, for them to jump into that technology because they jump heavy, right? When they do that type of yeah. stuff, that probably, yeah, they, they don't buy two, they don't buy two yeah. and they probably needed a little bit of handholding at, at, at that point. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think their initial purchase was four or five consoles. 
Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and that was it. Uh, I would have thought they'd dive in bigger. Well, and then it was 20. Well, I mean, over the course of my tenure, there was 150 consoles. Oh, oh yeah. there you go. Yeah. So, you know, and, and there were a couple of very large purchases in there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of it was as, as they needed. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you, virtually every major sound company had a, a fleet of venue consoles. One of my happiest moments was uh, Coachella t- 2011 where uh, Dave Ratt was uh, mm-hmm. at front of house. And, you know, the funny thing about digital consoles, right? The, the holy grail of digital consoles is you can have one console at the desk, uh, at front of house, and everybody can use it, which, of course, is not what happens, right? So Coachella, I was happy to say that virtually all the acts were using venue consoles. But they had, and they had two venue consoles stationed at front of house on, on the top two stages. But the three headlining acts each day would bring in their own console. So at one point, there were five venue consoles sitting in front of house. And I have it's a, a nice picture, picture of Dave. It's a nice picture. Dave Rad in a sea of venue consoles. That's a nice picture. That's yeah, awesome. That's, yeah. when, that's when I you know, felt like we were successful. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. That was a lot of fun. It's still ridiculous to see you know, Duran Duran bring in their console next to Mumford & Sons console. It's the same, the same friggin' thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Why were they using their own? Uh, you know, they all have their own... Plugins, they all trust their own stuff. They all want to be self-contained. Yeah. And, and you can see. And, you know, yeah. and the consoles could be configured, configured differently. Okay. I don't think they were, but yeah. they could be. And yeah. it, it was safer. I mean, Well, because I, I, I always it. believed that you just show up with, you know, a USB drive or a something. Yeah, but then you had the plug-in issue. Did, you know, the right plugins installed. Right, of course. Yeah. 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 So no, no one wanted to take a chance. Yeah. Very so, interesting. So moving on from there. Okay, go. So go ahead. So Avid. So, you know, it was at Avid, uh, and, you know, it, it was, um, I, how do I, how, I'm trying to figure out how to put this tactfully. Let's say I, I felt time to move on. And sure. I, and uh, Martin approached me. Uh, they, uh, you know, they did not have as strong of U.S. presence as they felt they should have had. They felt they had neglected. I mean, they, at that point, was Loud Audio, which, yeah. which owned Martin Audio. And was it Rob? Uh, no, was it, Rob no, there it, still? Uh, Rob was there. Okay. Uh, I was approached by uh, Mark Graham, who's the CEO of Loud, and um, you know, also some people from Martin Audio. Simon okay. Bull was a sales manager. Um, so we, uh, you know, we, we discussed it back and forth, and at some point I saw that there was really a, a lot of upside, and it was, you know, I, basically my career has moved along the, uh, 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 moved along the, the, the signal flow, right? I mean, I started microphones. <laughs> yeah, and I moved to consoles, and and here I am at at Loud. Well, you actually started at instruments. Well, I did. That's yeah. true. To microphones. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I think I'm dead after this. I don't think I go That's anywhere. Yeah, but you, you're going to be an audience member after that. But I could, yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah, gotta, maybe, occasionally still am. Or sit here wearing headphones doing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the next frontier. Yeah, a geezer. Uh, but, so they they felt they needed uh, some leadership. They they you know. Needed someone who knew the tour sound companies, and obviously, from my background at uh, at Digizign with the venue console, uh, you know, I had that. Um, so they wanted me to build a, a U.S. organization. They, you know, I mean, it was forever. It was Rob. It was just yeah, Rob yeah. without a lot of support. Yeah. So I mean, initially, from what I can remember, anyway, I mean, Martin Audio per se, prior to the loud technology stuff. Um, I know that a lot of you know, like I think Delicate Productions um, yeah. out, out of California had yep. had some had some of the stuff, but it was basically primarily you know, a lot of Brits made it over <laughs> right into the United States and were ultimately very successful. Yeah, but 
they were the sort of the initial adopters of this. It was sort of like a, these were these boutique sound systems because the guy was British, they were British, they had this hookup, they went to the pub, they drank, and the next thing you know, there was a sound system sitting over yeah. here, right? So, but it was just kind of very loosey-goosey at, at, at that point, right? Yeah. So Loud kind of made the move to, to come in, purchase Martin Audio, and then sort of legitimize it, right? Is that kind of... Uh... I, I, th I, you know, I think they bought it for a good price. I, you know, I'm probably not telling tales out of school. Avid thought about buying buying Martin Audio. Mm -hmm. We were on the table with it twice, and almost right. bought it. So it, it was up for sale. And and Loud saw what they thought was a great opportunity. Um, you know, they they had EAW. EAW was strong in the U.S. but didn't do much right. overseas. Martin Audio was virtually the opposite. So they they kind of saw it as makes sense. Yeah. Right. Um, stratifying their business, a little yeah. bit diversified. Um, but then after a while, that you know, they they had MLA. I mean, this this great product, and and they felt that they didn't have the organization around it to support it. So they brought me on to try to to you know, build and lead a, uh, a sales organization. Mm -hmm. um, and they they still kept me. Different owners now, of course. Yeah, but so I mean, you know, with Loud, Loud wound up being very corporate because i mean they were they were basically they owned what i mean like you Mackie, said Mac, e Mackie, e w yeah i mean ampeg mm -hmm. so i mean in a bunch a bunch of people see i mean it, it, it still had you know if you went up to the headquarters still had some of the the Mackie vibe to it mm -hmm. um you know the, the pacific northwest vibe to it so i don't know if i would call it corporate but the problem was it was owned by you know venture capital Right. And and uh, it just didn't allow they didn't put the company in a great place to succeed. You're only L as good loud, as your last quarter. Loud in general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it, it was a lot of that. Yeah, it, it was absolutely a lot of that. And I was I was, you know, probably a couple of degrees removed removed from that. I just heard the uh, the anguish screams of people who were above me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so it it, it was it was tough. Um, and you know, the company changed hands really a couple times among you know, private equity groups. And then uh, probably, well, it was a year and a half ago, uh, we completed our management buyout where Martin Audio is now, you know, with, some, with some help from, from Lloyd's in, uh, in England, yeah. we, are, <laughs> right. you know, we are in control of our own destiny, um, which, which has been great. It's allowed us to you know, reinvest in, in the company and you know, we're, we're in control of, like I said, we're in control of our destiny and, and the business. Yeah. We're growing. You decide now. Well, decide, and I've been able to grow the U.S. team considerably over this, yeah. this last year. Really, the last three years, the whole, whole team has been restructured. Um, That's great. Thrilled with the team. Uh, yeah. A lot of people I've worked with before, actually, who just yeah. happen, to be, happen to be available, and, and some newcomers as well. So big change in customer experience, I guess, right? Uh, that's you know, that's loud the goal. Versus, loud versus uh, Martin Audio Independent, right? Or, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, definitely. Um, you know, whereas, you know, you had, it was tough to tell what responsibilities were Louds and what were Martins. Now we know where the responsibility yeah, lies. Yeah. Uh, you know, the challenges have been being a brand new company, you know, we, you know, for the last six months of last year, we leased services from Loud. Mm -hmm. you know, and then on the first of this year, we were standing on our own two feet. So it means implementing a new ERP system, figuring out our old oh. systems and processes. So it's, it's, where been, is the product? I, my, manufactured? Hair, my hair was black before <laughs> this. <laughs> Where's the product time. manufactured? Most of it's manufactured in the UK. Okay. There's some things that are manufactured Still. in China. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, Very cool. There are no ceiling speakers manufactured anywhere but China. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been great. It's, it's been great. Again, you know, the, the challenges of a new ERP system and all that, but but the fact that we are 
masters of our own domain. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, congratulations. That's going to be, uh, you know, there's something to be said for looking in the mirror and saying, you know, I'm responsible. <laughs> like, yeah. What yeah. happens that, is on my shoulders. That was, that was actually what I liked about the DigiDesign gig. Yeah. That I knew it was on my shoulders. Yeah. yeah. And, and if there were any mistakes, I knew exactly where to look. Well, you're back there now. Yeah. You know, that's, that's you again. So what do you think about the, the state of the audio business today? Are we, are we in a really good place? Are we in a, is there going to be change coming? Like, you know, we just talked about this on the lighting business and I'll give you an example in the lighting business. Basically what's happening is it's almost like a race on which part of the industry can take on more private equity money right. and be bigger than the other parts. So the customers are, you know, bigger than the, than the distributors who are getting bigger than the manufacturers who are, you know, trying to stay bigger than live nation who are, you know, and so it's like, you know, you have to kind of keep pace or get run over by your own customers or whatever. Right. So is it similar in the audio business? Well, we've, we've just had that with Solotech. Solotech is probably now our biggest customer globally because they bought up all the, uh, all of your smaller customers uh, in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so, you know, they're, they're, they're a huge customer. They own a lot of, uh, of Martin gear at this point. Yeah. Uh, that was not the case say a year ago. Right. right. Uh, so, so we, we do see that, um, yeah. you know, I see some more consolidation on the, uh, on the manufacturer side. I still yeah. think that some of that's going to go on. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to see some more venture capital money come in. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'll see people change hands every three to five years and see what happens there. Some of them, some of them negotiating that very successfully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, know, I mean, and, there's, and, and, and definitely consolidation on, on the customer side. I mean, I, you know, I don't think solo tech is done. I no, mean, they, they just, you know, they PRG is not even done. PRG is not done. Yeah. Um, and there's more coming up too. like, you know, four wall in the lighting business has been consolidating very quickly in North America. They've yeah. just bought one European company. They're starting to consolidate video into it all. Who knows if they'll ever get audio involved. Right. And I think more is going to happen on the integration side. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of capital out there. Right. There's a lot of money out there. So if you can show EBITDA in a company and you can show a plan to grow that EBITDA and scale your business, capital can be engaged very quickly. Yep. So, um, it's definitely interesting times we live in. And I mean, the good news is, and I'm sure the audio business is the same. There's so much going on there. There is a ton going on. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was some study that came out a year and a half ago. So you know, loudspeaker business was going to grow to $8 billion by the middle of next decade or something like that, That's which insane. is uh, who knows if it's right. And think about predictions. They're always wrong. So in your part of the business in, in let's call it, you know, pro line array yeah. business, have the Chinese infiltrated it yet? Um, they're trying. I haven't, I, you know, we don't come up against it. No. So, so I, I really don't see it. I see it more at trade shows than I do anywhere else. Okay. Cause I know in lighting, it took a very long time where, you know, they went from being a joke that were just used in the worst nightclubs to being a joke that were used in slightly better nightclubs right. to being kind of a joke that were being used in lots of nightclubs. And now some of the smaller rental companies to now some of the biggest lighting companies out there are Chinese yeah. uh, importers, yeah. American companies with, you know, Chinese manufacturing. Right. And very good quality product. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think inevitably more, more and more manufacturing is going to move over there from, right. from non-Chinese companies. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll see how, you know, 
I don't know if everyone's going to make their top tier product there, right. but they'll make a lot of products there. Yeah, I used I used to have an employee that said, uh, you know, there's a very big difference between Chinese made and made in China. Yeah, it's true. And that's well said. Yeah. So, um, we're not knocking China. I'm not knocking Chinese product. China has a lot of money and they have a lot of ability to go in yes, and just do. sweep a market. So I'm just, maybe line array just isn't big enough for China to be really super yeah, excited it, by it. I know, don't know. We're, we're unique in our space and that not only are we, a, you know, uh, top manufacturer of, of line arrays, but we have a very broad portfolio. Right. We've got yeah. small installation speakers and right. which are made in China and we have ceiling speakers, which like I said, all of them in the market yeah. are made in China. Um, and I don't really come up against Chinese manufacturers with yeah. those either. So do you get involved in, in sales with Martin outside of the U S and Canada, or are you just pretty focused no, on US, US and Canada? Canada. Uh, yeah. you know, I'm usually aware of what's going on in Latin America, but that, but that's about it. So is North America like, uh, I'm not going to ask you what per- percentage of your revenue it is, but is, is it, it it's the proper percentage of, of the revenue. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. So, I mean, what is, what is your most important market today from a revenue standpoint? Is it, is it North America or is it Europe? Ooh. Or is it neither? Um, I think we see more upside in North America. Because I, th- I think historically for Martin Audio, North America has been the least developed. Right. Um, right. So Europe and, is and, more mature and, yeah, and, and more developed. And, 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 we're, and we're better known yeah, because yeah. of it. And, you know, it's due to proximity. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we still, we have a lot of upside here. And, yeah. we, and you know, a lot of products have come out, enormous amount of products come out the last two years and more to come. Yeah. So, you know, well, Henry and I both are, are, I would say me more so non-audio people. Uh, you know, I've had an audio background because I was a musician and then owned sound systems and then sold sound systems right. as well. But I'm not an audio guy, as you can tell. Um, but we we love interviewing on this podcast um, some of the British uh, sort of British invasion audio guys. And you know, we had their characters. We had uh, Britannia Rowe. We had Mike Lowe on. Yeah. We had. Um, the founders of turbo sound on wow and um you know i mean just a real cool bunch yeah. like an interesting bunch of people who all just really seem to do things every step of the way for the right reasons you know it's it's still a little you know, at least in in some circles it's still a little bit like the wild west yeah yeah you know it's it's I mean, this whole thing was started by for black better word cowboys yeah right yeah it's and, true and it's it still keeps a little bit that that you know that rock and roll attitude to it. Yeah. Which is what's fun. Yeah. Yeah. We all love it. So, um, I mean, any, any, uh, sort of parting thoughts, anything, uh, that you guys are trying to like, what are you promoting at the show? For example, what's, what's important to you here that people should be looking to see. So we have our wayfront precision line, which is the, yeah, the newer line of, that, of yeah. line arrays. So we have, yeah. we have the WPS and WPM, which are the two smaller arrays in the system here at the, the LDI amplify. Okay. Uh, show floor, we have a new product for us, which is called Blackline X Powered. So I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about some of that because yeah. I was just looking at the Blackline stuff. Um, but go ahead, finish up what you're saying. Well, so the, the, you know, it, that continues in our um, our strategy, which is you know we have this top tier product, and in, in pretty much every product segment, we're coming up with a a lower end model of that or a derivative of that. So we have CDD Live, which is also an LDI Amplify, which is a powered two-way. It's a powered coax two-way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Blackline X powered is based on our Blackline X line, which came out a couple years ago, which is a, a standard trap, 
a mm -hmm. two-way box. This is powered with DSP, with even Bluetooth control and a mic input. So it's something a lot, a lot of corporate uh, providers provide on a regular basis for breakout rooms. So yeah, I mean, you know, one area that I see a tremendous amount of growth in, and we're sitting in a breakout room right now, right? The column speakers with with the sub uh, with the subwoofer stuff, right. right? So you know, obviously there are a lot of entrants into that market yes. because you get, uh, you know, so you have like KRA, RCF, uh, JBL, the the Eon one, I think, you know, plays in that market and Bose. things like Bose, yeah. So yeah, the L ones, yeah. I remember when I started seeing like a single or a duo in a in a bar or a lounge using the Bose, I think it was 901. Like this yeah. is yeah. 20 yeah. years ago now, probably. And just looking at it and going, that's coming out of that. Like right. this yeah. doesn't make any sense to right. me. So I mean, pretty cool. you know, uh, portability being the big thing. So I think, you know, the people that are kind of running away with it to a certain degree right now are the RCF guys, believe mm -hmm. it or not. They have that really kind of skinny subwoofer box. Right. It's got a pair of twin eights in it. And right. they have the, the column speaker. Are you guys going to play in that market or not? Uh, I can't speak to it one way or the other. Okay. I just can't say if we are or aren't. Okay. No, not in a to wink on that released. one. To be none, determined. None. On. Well, I mean, I see that as like the natural evolution to the black line stuff. It would be yeah. That. It, it, you know, it's a question of whether you want to be, how much do we want to be me too? Or do we want to do something different? Yeah. Like it's it's just you know because you know so so when you look at the industry, for lack of a better term, you know, you, there used to be a lot of sound companies, a lot of lighting companies, a lot of video video companies, and then it's all kind of being homogenized together now again. Mm. But, you know, the need for gear that's simpler to set up, train less qualified, you know, audiovisual technicians and things like that has really driven kind of this little teeny tiny box market, for lack yeah. of a better term, right? So I was just kind of curious. I wanted to get your, you know, your thoughts on that because there's some great sound that comes out of that. And I think really on the, on the top end, you know, K-Ray kind of is the people that kick ass, right, the most in, in terms of that. And yeah, I, I mean, they, they've certainly taken the, the high-end approach to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, it, it, it's, there's a lot of product out there like that. I don't, I honestly don't know if we're going in that market mm -hmm. or not. I okay. don't know if we made up our mind. Mm. Um, yeah. or we may take a different approach. And you know, the question is how much in that market we want to play. We, we, you know, we have, um, we have, we have holes to fill in our product line. We have, uh, uh some products that probably need to be refreshed. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's a matter of, of picking and choosing the priorities. Yeah. yeah I, you can't be everything to everyone. It's yeah. just, it's amazing when you walk into a, you know, uh, basically an AV company and there's 200, you know, of these teeny tiny boxes in there, right? right. Sitting on a shelf. So right. there you go. 